second grade can be dismissed for children's church. And you may be seated. <laughs> well, it makes me feel a little bit self-conscious. Maybe I can announce opportunity for others of you to leave, and you'd cheer and run out the door, too. Man. <laughs> All right, children, I want to uh, draw your attention for those who remained. You're the children I like, by the way. <laughs> to the blast zone, and uh, this is an opportunity for you to pay attention, take notes, and color some stuff on the back. I will endeavor to say most of these words multiple times, okay, so that you will have opportunity. And then after... Our time here, Miss Brianna will be over here to uh, uh, check your work and make sure you got it all right. And actually, she loves to talk to the children about what they have learned during the service. And so uh, I think she enjoys it probably more than they do. Uh, if you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to uh, be working through that passage, Lord willing. You'll notice it's not a short passage. We will trust the Lord today and try and work through this. Genesis Chapter 1, and I'm going to break down and wear my glasses. Uh, no, I know. All right. All the people older than me are like, yeah, about time. And all the people younger are like, don't do it. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding Seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. 
And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled to read about creation, to read about your mighty acts in bringing about this world in which we live, the things we see in it, and us. We are humbled at this peak into the beginning. And we are humbled that we get to come into your presence, the one who created, the one who is sovereign, the one who is God, who is eternal. We are humbled. And we ask this morning... Father, that as we have your word open before us and we seek to understand what you have for us in this first chapter of your word, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. We pray that Jesus, our Lord, would be lifted up, even in this time. We ask for your work in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great questions of life and really one that everyone needs to have an answer for is where did we come from? If a 
TV reporter came and stuck a camera and a microphone in your face and asked where we came from, what would you say to that reporter? Well, as we look at this uh, passage, we see that it's talking about beginnings. It's talking about where we came from. And our goal today is a, uh, a, a big one. We're going to try and work all the way through the days of creation. We will save uh, the seventh day. And for another time, you'll notice we didn't go to that one. But the six days of creation, we want to go through today and, and understand more about uh, where it is that the Bible says we came from. And so uh, there, um, there's a particular way we're going to do this. If you look at the six days, and I spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks looking at the six days to understand them side by side, they're sort of broken into two categories. The first three days talk about uh, the five realms of God's creation. And then you have those three days laying out those five realms. And then this day four, five, and six... Uh, point us to uh, five types of residents that are going to fill that earth. And so we're going to look at that in that order, and then we're going to see finally some uh, things that this teaches us about God himself. And so that's our uh, our goal for today, is to look at those things. You notice, uh, we said when we read verse 2 that the earth was without form and void. Well, there's a formlessness about the initial aspect of creation or about uh, how God is starting. He's, he's not finished. When we read those uh, first couple of verses there, he hasn't finished with creation. There's a point here where it's formless. It's without form and it's void, meaning it needs to be put into order. It needs to be populated. And that's what we're going to see happen in the six days of creation here. And so, whereas the first... Uh, uh, we read in verse 2 that it was without form. What we're going to see is that the first three days give form to it. So we can have an orderly understanding of the world itself. And so we have this description of day one. Day one is the first realm, and that's the realm of day and night. Day and night. God said, let there be light. And there was light. I love about the Bible that it doesn't spend a lot of time or, frankly, any time arguing for <clears throat> the existence of God or the power of God. It just shows it, puts it on display for us, that the, the very essence of light itself exists because God said so. It doesn't describe how he did it other than that he spoke. It doesn't say that he worked hard to do it. It doesn't describe the scientific background or any of those things. It just said Light exists because God said, let there be light. And we're going to see that consistently, <clears throat> excuse me, consistently throughout the remainder of, uh, of this first chapter here that God just does it. How can he do it? Because he's God. He has that power. He has that authority. He has that creativity. He just does it. And so right out of the gate, we see God said, let there be light. And there was light. We're going to see also all the way through this that God creates by his spoken word. Ten times in the first chapter alone, we see God said, God said. And then you'll see uh, he says something's going to be created. Something is going to exist. He declares that it's going to exist. And it does. It was so. That's the power of God's word. His spoken word created all things. 
And we don't, we don't think about that when we hold His Word in our hands. That's the power of God's Word. That's the position and the authority. That's the creativity, meaning the ability to create. It's located right here in God's Word. And so all of creation exists because God spoke. And God has spoken to us in His Word. And so as we think about our Christian life, as we think about understanding reality, as we think about uh, parenting and, and our relationship with God and everything in between, the source is right here. God's Word. And I think that's part of what's being communicated by the fact that God speaks so often in Genesis chapter 1. So light is created Light is separated from the darkness. You're going to see throughout this chapter, there's a separation of one thing from another thing to make a distinction between these two things. And he separates light from the darkness. And by the way, he declares that light is good, which is not what he says about darkness. Darkness is going to be a theme throughout the rest of Scripture that's easy for us to identify with that it's not good, that it conceals, that it... It, uh, it, it, it hides uh, rebellion, and, it, and it, it's, a, it, it's not a good thing. So he's contrasting here. He creates the light, separates it from the darkness, and then he gives the name to each day and night. And one of the reasons that he uh, separates light from darkness, or one of the aspects of light itself, is that light is life-giving. You know, you can grow plants in your house, but you're going to have to have some form of light, usually. Unless you're growing some kind of mushroom, and I don't know anything about mushrooms. You need light. Light is life-giving, right? That's one of the great things about Fallon, is we have a lot of sunlight, and so stuff grows. There are other problems, like the curse on the earth that makes it difficult for stuff to grow in Fallon, but that's a different issue. Light is life-giving, and God sees the light, and He sees that it is good. The first of several declarations of that. So, the first realm is day and night, the, the realm of day, the realm of night. What about the second day? We move on in the second day to the realm of the sky. Look at verse, verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. What's going on there? There's, there's water on, uh, on the earth. And what happens is, on day two, he is piercing into that and he is separating the waters that are above from the waters that are beneath. That word expanse or firmament or canopy, right? He's, he's, he's basically cutting the waters in half and lifting them up and lifting them above and making a space in between. So the water, there's water down here, there's water up here, and then there's an expanse that you have in between here. And that expanse, he ends up calling heaven or the heavens. I've called it the sky because I think that's what it's referring to. It's not talking about ultimate glory, though there's imagery that will point that direction. But he's talking about the sky. The waters were above the sky. And uh, you and I don't think this way, and, and, uh, and, but I think this is the case. I think there's this separation where you've got waters above. Now, we're going to see a flood later on that's going to explain some of this, I believe. But, but what happens is there's a separation. God is separating all this water and all this stuff that was kind of mixed together, and he separates it, and he makes an expanse. So that you've got the waters above, you've got the waters below, and the area in between is named the sky. So the waters are separated by an expanse. That's day two. 
Well, day three brings us to the realms of earth and sea. So we look at... at uh, I have to put my glasses on again, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I believe I misread uh, before. So day two happens actually... Uh, that's a plug for glasses right there. Uh, day two actually happens, verse six. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. That's why it didn't make any sense to you. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So that's the, that's the realm of the sky. And thirdly, we have the realms of earth and sea. And God said, let the waters under the heavens, the water that's down here, so we're not talking about this water anymore, we're talking about what's down here. Let it be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. The waters that were gathered together, he called seas and saw that it was good. So again, you've, you've got this realm of what's going on. Initially, it was kind of, a, kind of a large and nebulous idea of light and dark. And then secondly, it was this division where now there's a sky appearing in between the waters above and the waters below. And then now he's focusing on what's down here, the waters below, and he gathers all the waters into one place and the dry land appears. So he's working down in this realm now. And on that, we see they're going to sprout up um, vegetation of different kinds, right? With trees and, and whatnot are going to appear on the earth there. God sees that the earth uh, and the sea were created, the veg- vegetation reproducing after its kind, and he declares that that is good. That is a good thing. All right, so we've, we've laid out some, some basic understanding of places, as it were, right? Realms, I've called them. Well, the second half is going to talk about five types of residence within those realms. God's creation has five types of residence, and that's going to, uh, whereas we looked at the formlessness, it was formless and void, he's, he's rectified the formlessness, now there's form to everything, structure, but it's also void, meaning empty, vacant. Well, now in day four, five, and six, he's going to fill up that vacancy. He's going to populate that earth. And this describes where uh, all things, all living things came from. In the Hebrew mindset, plants weren't living things. They don't have the breath of life. But, uh, but animals do and birds do and, and even, even uh, sea creatures, etc. do. So he's going to fill up that void, that emptiness. And he's going to do so day four with the luminaries. He created light and dark, day and night. And now, only after having done so, does he create the instrument that produces that light. Now, does that give you a problem? Let's think about that for a second. It doesn't give me a problem at all. Because God himself is the one who spoke and said, let there be light. It doesn't have to come from a sun or a light bulb or a reflection or anything else. It exists ultimately because God said so. And so it doesn't matter if there's not a, a, a star in our solar system sending forth light. Because God said, let it be. He doesn't need a star in our solar system to accomplish that. And so it's not until we get to day four that you have the sun and the moon and the stars being created. And so we see that in verse 14. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. To separate the day from the night. 
Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. So he puts them into place to distinguish light and darkness, to distinguish day and night, to to spell out seasons and times and all that kind of stuff. Why do the why do the stars spin the way they do, or or why does the earth spin and it all looks like it spins? Because God put it there so that we could have a calendar would distinguish days and seasons and all of that kind of stuff. God put those things up there for those purposes. But there's something interesting. I've called them the sun and the moon and the stars. But that's not what this says. Do you, you see what verse 16 said? God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the nights. Why didn't he just say the sun and the moon? Well, it's... Sometimes difficult to determine exactly why. But when you go back and you read other creation accounts of the pagan peoples who lived around the nation of Israel. And you look at their religions and what they worshipped. Very often they worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. And so even gods in these other religions in their own language would be called the sun god. Or the moon god, and that's what they worship. And our people worship the moon god or, or, or whatever. And when, when our author is writing this, I believe it's Moses, author's writing this, he's very careful not to use those words, but to describe them for what they are. The sun is not this, this mighty, powerful, life-giving force that's to be worshipped, that's, that's a god. No, it's just a creation of God. It's just a light. We have lights in our room. Now, this is a big light. This is a great light. And that's what he calls it, the the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. But the author is very specifically bringing up the same things that everybody sees, but that the pagans worship. And he's saying, oh, that thing you worship that's your God who does things for you, you think? No, he's just a creation of God. And actually, he just spoke it. He didn't even work hard. He didn't break a sweat to create this light bulb in the sky that you worship. And so he's distinguishing the distinction, the the, the differences, the, the vast differences between our God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, versus the pagan gods. And we're going to see this play out as you read on in the Bible. You get to Isaiah and different places like that, and you see... Sometimes there's, there's actual humor used, you know, talking about people who you cut down a tree and you use half the tree to cook your dinner and, and, and heat your fire and keep your house warm and you make the other half into a god and you bow down to it as if it's some powerful thing. That's not unlike what our author is doing here. Oh, that great thing that you worship is a light bulb God made one day. He spoke and it came into being. The great... Sun and the moon are only greater or lesser lights. Now, just pausing for a moment to think about a a point of uh, application for us, you and I are probably not uh, tempted to worship the sun and the moon. Probably not, okay? But there are a couple of other really insidious uh, temptations that are kind of trending nowadays that, that stem from a misunderstanding or rather would be corrected by properly understanding Genesis chapter 1. The first one is to exalt humanity. 
All of these things that we've been talking about, and we're going to get to man in a little bit, but all of these things we've been talking about, God just created them. He just spoke them into being. He didn't break a sweat. He didn't have to borrow from somebody else. He didn't have to um, do anything else other than just speak, and it existed. And man is going to be one of those points of creation. We're going to see there's a great deal of dignity invested in mankind. And you and I recognize that, but it says it ex- explicitly here in this passage. But there's a temptation in our world today to exalt humanity. The pinnacle. This is what humanism is all about. The pinnacle of reality is is up to us to determine and we get to decide it and, and we have that kind of power. We are such beings as that. But in the Genesis account, as much dignity and importance as we have, and it's a lot, it also makes it clear that that we are created with a job and we were spoken by His Word, by His creative act. He made us. So we are just like the sun and the moon and the stars that we know we shouldn't worship. But sometimes we're tempted in some ways to worship mankind and certainly the world around us is tempted to worship mankind. But there's a second, maybe more insidious temptation that goes on and that's the temptation to worship the environment. If you have been following um, the developments in in various uh, fields of science and, and other things regarding environmentalism, it's a huge temptation. I've already mentioned that, that we are viewed by many, we humans are viewed by many as being like a plague, like a virus on the planet, and the planet would be better off if we were wiped away, or at the very least, if we were contained. So there needs to be some sort of uh, way to contain us so that the world can f- flourish and thrive on its own. But very contrary to that, we see in this passage that that the creation, the environment is made for us to live in it. It's a house for us to dwell in. And in fact, we are told far from, uh, be careful how much you you know multiply. He says, no, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole place. It's very contrary to our world. It's very contrary to what we would experience today. But we need to move on. We need to move on. And look at day five. Day five has some other residents there, the sea creatures and the birds. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters. So again, we're, we're, we're uh, uh, here on day five. We're, we're populating day two. And we're seeing what's happening here. Verse 20, God said, let the waters uh, swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created sea creatures, the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good. And he blessed them too and said, be fruitful and multiply. And so what happens here is that he is uh, populating the expanse, the heavens, the sky, and he's populating the waters. And so he creates the birds. He creates uh, the creatures that uh, are in the sea, sea creatures. And so he looks at that and he says that that is good as well. So he's again, he's built the house in day one, two, three. Now he's filling the house day four, five, six. Day six is where it 
uh, really comes home and gets powerful. We look at, at uh, what happens here in verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So he starts making stuff that lives on the, on the earth, on the ground, not flying and not swimming in the water, but the, the beasts. The land animals. He starts making those. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So he begins to populate not just the sky and not just the sea, but now to populate the land. He makes all of these creatures. The place is, is entirely populated with one giant exception. There's no one to rule over it. There's, there's not his special creation placed in the midst of all of this. And so that brings us to the second half of day six. We see 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our, our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he's made us to have dominion. We're not one of the rest of creation. Yes, we are creation and we are we are, we are exist because he says so and we are just his created beings, but we have a special role. We're not just alongside the fish. We're not just alongside the birds or alongside the beasts. Man has been put for a particular purpose. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. There's something unique and special about mankind. By the way, everybody knows this. I know there's, there are aspects of, of um, evolution and, and whatnot and, and things connected with that where people try to deny that. We are, just, we are just beings alongside other beings, and there's nothing special. We're, we're in the animal kingdom, after all. But we can't deny the reality that there's something unique and special about us. And so here on day six, we see the creation of man. He's the crown of creation. He's been given a role. And he says here, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now, by way of excuse, I do intend to preach an entire message on this one little section, so I'm not going to develop it as fully right now. But what is the image of God? A lot of people speculate about, about what all goes into it. You know, maybe it's our creativity or maybe it's, you know, mind, emotion, will, or maybe it's uh, some other things about us. And, and I, I, I don't know about all of those things. I don't, I don't see something arising from the text that would argue that for me. But I, but I do see two things in the Bible about the image of God in man. And first of all, is here we are functioning as his representatives on earth. God is the ultimate king who has ultimate dominion over all things. And he has put an image of himself in this house, in this construction, in this creation to have dominion over the earth. And so in that sense, we are in the image of God, whereas he is ultimately sovereign and in charge over all things. We are, in a sense, in a tiny, tiny sense, in charge of things on earth. This is what we've been given. This creation is ours to have dominion over. That's, that's one aspect of what it means to be in the image of God. And the second, I would say at the, at the least, the second aspect of the image of God is that we uniquely, humans uniquely have something, the capacity to be rightly related to God 
in fellowship with him that animals don't have, that other beings don't have. There's something unique about us. Jesus wasn't born as a camel or some other being. He was born as a human. There's something unique about the relationship between God and man. And so that has something to do with the image of God as well. So uh, we have to pass on, unfortunately, but uh, we'll come back to this another time, Lord willing. But uh, he made them in the image of God. And so God created man in his own image, in the likeness or in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. He made us male and female. We're going to spend a lot more time talking about this, too. But I want to point out at this point, this this isn't our notion. We don't create the reality of maleness and femaleness within ourselves. God made it. God determined it. We don't invent it. We don't create it. We don't alter it. God created male and female. We'll get into that more another time. And what's man supposed to do? And God blessed him and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, etc. And so he blessed us in that way and he told us to fill up the whole earth. Fill up the whole earth. You see how that's so contrary to, to the, the philosophy of our age? which would have us uh, have, have, have no children for the sake of our, of our uh, environment or, or something like that. You can read and listen to uh, painful and uh, idolatrous descriptions of what man ought to do and how man ought to relate to the creation around us, the environment. Now, we've been made to fill it up and to rule over it. That requires wisdom. That requires good stewardship. But that's what we've been given to do. And then uh, we, we see all that wrapped up at the very end where as, as we keep on reading and we see the blessing, we see the giving of food. I'll notice here it's plants, which I don't like to admit. But I also will notice later on we'll get to the meat eating, okay? And God saw everything, verse 31. Uh, well, he said these things and it was so, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. When all of this is put together, we've moved on from good. Light was good and plants that reproduced and, and things. That's all good. When it's all together with, with the image placed there, now it's very good. Now it's very good. And so that's about as fast as I ever uh, cared to go through six days of creation. And I'm sure at least some of you wanting for some uh, for some things, but what I want to do is spend the remainder of our time looking at how God's creation has shown us at least five realities about God. We want to learn what we can about God in this passage. The first one is order with intentionality. Order. God is a God of order. Did you notice again and again, I tried to emphasize it a little, I'm sure you picked up on it, living things, they reproduce after their kind. After their kind. There's a consistency. If you have an apple tree in your yard, it's going to produce apples. If it produces anything. It's going to produce apples, right? It's not going to make pears. Everything produces after its kind. Secondly, I noticed that living things, they have, they've been given an environment that is appropriate to their needs. Swimming things are made in the water. They're not made on the land and, oh, man, he died. Guess I'll start over, right? They they have an they have an environment that is appropriate to their needs. This this shows God's uh, order 
the orderliness of God and the intentionality of God. Male and female are made the way they are on purpose to complement one another and to enable mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If there is no male and female of mankind, they cannot be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. There's no reproduction. And so you see the order, the intentionality of uh, of God doing that. And he had instructed them to be fruitful and multiply, but without male and female, they wouldn't have been able to. And regarding intentionality, you notice first that he created the realms, the structure, and secondly, he populated it all. He was did so on purpose. And I want to notice before we move on to the next one that God's orderliness and his intentionality in creation is what gave rise to the study of science. I'm in the book of Genesis. You notice I'm not talking about science uh, because I don't, I don't uh, think we really need to do that at this exact point. Uh, this chapter and this book gave rise to the study of science. And nowadays, you will hear that it's you know science versus the Bible. Well, I want to say baloney. You can misuse science and you can, you can warp science to try and argue against the Bible. But the Bible, uh, if the Bible doesn't exist and if the God of the Bible doesn't exist, science itself is not even possible. And so C.S. Lewis, speaking of that same thing, says, Men became scientific because they expected law in nature. Right? We understand a little bit about you know, laws of physics, we understand about how gravity works because it worked the same way yesterday as it did today. If it changed, uh, physicists would have real trouble. Doctors would have real trouble. We would have real trouble. Man became scientific, says Lewis, because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator, a lawgiver. This God who is discussed right here, the one who is actively creating. And he goes on, and Lewis says, In most modern scientists, this belief has died. It will be interesting, he says, to see how long their confidence in uniformity survives it. He wrote that in 1946. So you can see already the evidence of that. And he says two significant developments have already appeared, one of which is the surrender of the claim that science is true. So you can study it, you can do all the tests, you can determine a law of physics or whatever, but it's not really true. He says, we may be living nearer than we suppose to the end of the scientific age. When you deny, when you pull the plug, when you remove the lawgiver, suddenly there are no laws and you can no longer believe science. And modern day science is attempting to do that again and again. So we see the first thing about God is order and intentionality. Second, we see oneness and plurality. If you look at the other uh, creation accounts of the surrounding regions, the, the, the pagan regions around them, they talk about the gods doing the creating. There might be one main god, but he's always got a wife or a consort or, or, or whatever, or he's got a friend that they, they, they work together to create or these other things. There's always a, a bunch of gods, and, and the result is this creation through some kind of process. But in contrast to all of that mess, here you have God alone speaking, doing, creating, determining. You have God at work. You have one God, not a bunch. Not one leader of a bunch. You have him all by himself. And if, if you were a reader in the ancient Near East, 
That would strike you as very, very odd. Because there's only one. And so you have kicked off right here in the first chapter, even just the first couple of verses of the whole Bible, something that's going to be consistent all the way through. There is only one God. Yahweh God of the Bible. And so there's a very great unity. God is alone. He's perfectly self-existent. He didn't need anything else. He just created. He didn't have to have Plato to, to make everything work. He spoke and it happened. He is alone. He's the one who is self-determined, self-existing. But, I said Yahweh God of the Bible, but actually in this chapter, the name for God is Elohim. And Elohim is a plural word. Now, it's very often just a name for God. It just means God, but it is a plural word. It can also be used to talk about the gods when they're talking about idols or when they're talking about something else. And so there's a, it kind of opens the door. Why use that word? We're going to talk about why he uses that word, but the fact that it's plural and the fact that God says, let us make man in our image. Did you see that back at the, in verse 26? Let us make man in our image. There's a plurality there. And so what you have is you have one God, but somehow there's a plurality that exists within this one God. Which, of course, you and I know, since we know the rest of the book, that we have a triune God who is one God who exists eternally in three persons. So even in the very beginning here, you have the door opened up for what's later on going to develop into a clear expression of the Trinity in the Scripture. There is only one God, and yet He exists in three persons. We see a picture of that right here. So we have, we have unity, the oneness and the plurality of God. Thirdly, the third thing we learn about God is His majestic sovereignty. He creates without effort. When you read these other accounts, there's always some big war that goes on. Some dragon that's got to be slain, and they use the, the, the body of this dragon to form the earth, and it's this big struggle, and it's kind of this giant thing, and that's not what we have in the Bible. In the beginning was God, and He created everything. That's categorically different. Categorically different. And I use the one illustration uh, or talked about the sun and the moon being, being gods that were worshipped by the, the surrounding regions. And, and I think that's why Moses didn't use that language here. But there are several other accounts of things being created the way they are that are a direct argumentation against these pagan religions. God just did it because He is that sovereign. Fourthly, something we learn about God is His holy morality. His holy morality. He is a God of law, commanding man from the outset what man is to be doing. He gets to do that. Telling man what is right and wrong. He has the right to give commands. He has the right to be obeyed or execute justice when he is disobeyed. That's who God is. And that's his relationship to us. He himself is inherently a moral being. And He is a holy being, separate from us, separate from creation, separate from sin. He's different and distinct, and yet He's moral, and so He can tell us what to do. And I don't know um, about you, if you've learned ways to exasperate your children or not. I've learned a few, and I could teach you, and probably shouldn't. But uh, one of the ways to embitter your children 
is to make a rule for them that you're not going to follow. Boy, that just gets their goat, doesn't it? <laughs> because they, they recognize... They recognize that it's demotivating to them when an authority gives a rule that the authority is not going to take upon themselves. Now, there are some things I get to drive. My five-year-old doesn't get to drive. Okay, that's a good rule. We'll keep that rule, okay? But there are some things. For example, talking with food in your mouth, okay? That might be an issue in our house sometimes, and I might break that rule sometimes, and it gets pointed out sometimes. And it ought to be. And that's not how God is. The commands that God gives, the instructions that he gives, are consistent with his own moral character. He doesn't break them. They are reflections of who he is and what he's like. Not just a rule that, that, uh, that he made up because he thought it would be a good idea and is not going to follow himself. God is holy and he is moral. And then finally, and this is where we're going to end, the creator-creature distinction. God is eternal. Always existing. Will you be eternal? No, you had a beginning. It's unending. You, you will go on forever and ever. He had no beginning. There is a categorical difference between us and him in regard to his eternal, eternality. We ourselves are time-bound beings. Well, kind of related to this, when we lived in Russia, we were there for a few years and and particularly back in the 90s, we had to travel on trains. I love traveling on trains. And uh, the ching puts me to sleep like that. My wife hates it because she's staying awake thinking about stuff and I'm asleep. But if you look down train tracks, they, you know they're parallel because the train has to roll on them, right? But as you look farther down, it looks like they join together. And if you lived somewhere flat enough and straight enough, you'd, it would look like it would join to one point, right? Well, for, the, for these religions that were around the area, for these pagan religions that were around the area, when they looked back at their history and they talked about where they came from, there was a joining together of humanity and the gods. So that their ancient kings, if you went back far enough, they were, they were gods. They were some sort of god-man-king thing. So they were looking back and they saw the two go together. So that, you see, there's no actual uh, absolute distinction between us and God in their view. Our gods are like us. They're just bigger and stronger. And when they throw a fit, things go bad. But they're like us, essentially. Well, that's the pagan view. That's the pagan view of what God is like. That he is, he's one of us, and, or he used to be one of us. And here you have a completely different story. Here you, you see that there's a, there's a primary distinction that he is the creator and we will always be the creation. We will always be the creature. We will never lose that status. If you looked all the way back into eternity, which is what happened here, the two lines are still parallel. And Genesis 1 is giving, a, giving us a peek to the very beginning to see that there has always been and will always be a distinction between us and God. We always will be created beings. God will always be the uncreated creator. And that is a basic distinction between us and him. And so that means a lot about theology. That means a lot about how we, how we understand ourselves and how we understand God, etc. But it's very important for us to remember that, that he's the creator and gets to do what he wants. The great news is 
What he does is consistent with his own character. Because the laws that he gives us are reflections of who he is. And he doesn't break those. But the fact is, he's the one over us. He's the sovereign one. He's the God. And we're not. We're creatures who've been, been, been spoken into existence and given a task. Given commands by him. So this, this is the God with whom we have to do. Not just a bigger version of us. He is distinct and he is different. He's the one who created all things and to whom we as his creatures are accountable. And our rebellion against him exposes us to danger. The threat of repercussion puts us in mortal danger. Genesis 1 confronts us with the majesty and the holiness of God and to our utter accountability to Him as the Creator. That's where we start. We are accountable to Him. We don't hold Him to account. Sometimes we want to. Sometimes we read things in Scripture or we, or we, or we hear something about Him or whatever and we think, that wasn't very nice, God. Or we think, I don't know, that's not a great thing about God and, and I don't know. And so we, we, we come into this subtle position of we're going to judge Him. But He's the judge. He's the one to whom we will give an account, which is, which is good, but it's not good news for you and me because we have sin. We have rebellion. He, he is the sovereign one in charge of all things, and yet we've, we've been in rebellion against him. And Adam, the man who was just created, rebelled, and we inherit his rebellion, and we, f- we follow after it. And the result is that we have guilt before God. And so this good thing about God results in not being good news for us. We're guilty before this God who made us. We, the creation, who were spoken into existence, who are so distinct from Him and and owe everything to Him, we're accountable to Him, yet we have this guilt. And, And had God judged us in that guilt, and where God judges people in that guilt, He is right to do so. But He wasn't content to leave it that way. And so, Jesus, his son, one of those who spoke when he said, let us make man in our image, this Jesus that we find there in this context, comes onto the scene, still the creator, the one who created all things, and John uh, speaks very highly of that in John chapter 1, and he says that there's not anything been created that wasn't created by Jesus. And Jesus comes onto the scene into that category, living as one of us but to obey where Adam disobeyed so that there would be full and complete obedience to God and then dying in the place of uh, my punishment and your punishment so that if, if you and I will put our faith in him, the last Adam, if we will trust in Jesus, the one who obeyed God perfectly, not like this first Adam, if we will trust in Him, we will find that our guilt is put on Him and, and His life is given to us. And so suddenly we go from a place where, as created beings who are in rebellion and disobedient, we deserve judgment. Well, we still deserve judgment, but that's not what we get. We get life in Christ. That's what He gives us. That's how the book ends. That's the direction it's going. This life for us to have 
in Christ because of what he has done and thus be rightly related to this creator who is so powerful that he can speak all things into existence. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God that the story doesn't, doesn't end here. We'd be left a little bit in the dark. And praise God it doesn't end in chapter 3. We'd be left even more in the dark in a sense. We know where it heads. And so, just a couple of practical points for us this morning. First of all, if you, if you have come to realize that God really is the creator to whom you owe everything, and yet you've been in rebellion against him, and you realize your guilt before him and that you will have to pay that yourself, trust in Christ. Just believe in him. He's the one who obeyed in place of us and died in place of us so that we could have life. And by faith in Christ, you will have that life. And you will be made right with this God. You'll be rightly related to this God. You can call this creator God your father. And he will call you my child. Secondly, don't look for your origin story anywhere other than the Bible. Here's where it's found. Thirdly, don't look for your identity anywhere other than the Bible. You're not going to create your identity. You're not going to come up with an identity. No one else is going to give you your identity. It's right here. Next, don't look for your hope to solve your own broken life anywhere other than the Christ that the Bible points us to. You won't find resolution. You won't find peace. And you won't find healing. Only in Christ. So in conclusion, if you ever get the chance to talk to that reporter who's asking you where we come from, now you know what to tell him. You tell him, God made me and all things. God created man, male and female, after his own image. He created us in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He created us with dominion over the creatures. We are not subservient to our environment. We have dominion over the creatures. The broken people and the broken world that we see around us is the result of our first parents rebelling in their responsibilities to God. But if we will look to Christ, we will find resolution. And we will find a, a, a placement back into order under God's rule. But that's only to be found in Christ. And there is only hope to be found there. So Genesis 1 starts the story. Genesis 1 begins uh, where this is all going to head. And of course, you and I have read the book. We know where it goes. And we need to think about where it goes. And we need to think about what that means for us in our day and age. Let's pray together. Father, we have gone very quickly through a lot of material. I pray that, that you would use your word spoken today to minister in our hearts, maybe about our identity, maybe about uh, our view of you, maybe about our view of your word or our relationship to you, our relationship to your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts that we would find uh, grounding, foundation, right here in this passage, in you creating 
us. Father, we owe everything to you. And we rejoice that for all of us who are in Christ, we have peace with you and can call you our Father. Knowing the forgiveness of our sins, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account, so that we are welcomed into your family as your own adopted children. Father, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts. May your spirit glorify Jesus even as we ponder Genesis chapter 1. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family to pray with you if you want to come forward and pray with him. And I would remind you, children, that Miss Brianna is going to be over here to go through the blast zone with you. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed. <laughs>